Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best animated videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Nina Froreed. She enables business coaches to grow their businesses with consistent and easy to implement video content so they can attract their ideal clients. Nina has been in TV, film, and video production her entire life. She's seen it all from the early days on independent features to big national TV commercials, corporate mega shows, and Emmy award-winning documentary films, including one she produced and directed called Abraham's Children. Along the journey, she met many awesomely wonderful people and a few badasses. Nina has negotiated with teamsters, clients, actors, crew, children, police officers, a few dogs, and one snake all of them with their own great stories. She loves spending time outside, especially in the Swiss Alps where she's from. And Nina's owner is a Dachshund Yorkie mix named Tigger. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nina, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So talk to me a little bit, take me back. Like I was a film major in college. I'd love to know, like, how did you get your start working? Like the Virgin Mary got herself mocked up. I just, (laughs) (laughs) I came to New York in my early 20s and had a half a year to sign a shoot the breeze before I was going to go back to Switzerland and get married and supposedly produce a whole load of babies. And I went to the new school and the new school offered a film course. And I figured I was signed up for marketing and advertising. It's something I actually knew what it was coming from Switzerland and not having been exposed that much to the big wild world yet. And I figured, why not just take a film course, do something crazy before all the aforementioned things are going to happen. And then it was just love at first sight. I just never, I never left the film business after I took that one semester. I was just like the combination of everything that I enjoyed, which was working with people, organizing, the creative aspects, and not just one creative aspect. 
it was everything. It was acting, it was music, it was uh, speaking, it was writing, it was visuals. And I just totally fell in love with it. And the, and the technical aspects. And I'm not, uh, I'm not the biggest tech head in the world, but I'm also pretty good with and hands-on. So I just f- fell in love and, and A, never left New York and B, never left the film industry. I did some detours along the way. It's been a while, but in, it, that's a nutshell. Very cool. So you've worked on a variety of very diverse and different types of film and, and television work. What's been your favorite use case for film and television that you've been a part of? Oh, I'm looking back at over 30 years of career. It, it's. Well, I think my favorite is that it was never, ever anything was the same. Everything was so diverse and different, be it that just a single day within commercial production or corporate production or documentary production was different, but also that I did have the luxury to be exposed to feature films, to super high-end national TV commercials, both in Europe and in America, and to documentaries from the highest end to the lowliest bootstrap versions. I think it certainly is a reason why I ended up in the last couple of decades of my career in a sort of a balance between documentary work and corporate world work. They're mechanically quite similar, smaller crews as a producer. You also get to fulfill the role as director and you also get to put the teams together there's like there's no agency in between there's a lot more freedom and i think i really love sort of the duality and meeting really cool people and i think that's maybe also why i highlight that in my bio is just the diversity of humans that i have had the privilege from very poor rural people in pennsylvania to fortune 500 ceos or presidents of the united states it just really i, I enjoyed all of them i wouldn't just want to be stuck with one of one of them and so what then made you pivot away from a bit of that work towards what you do now with video marketing for business coaches? That's an actual excellent question. And I was just talking about that yesterday on a, on a platform, be it foresight in 2015 ish. I, I started feeling that if I wasn't going to pivot and pivot really radically, I was going to be the old geezer in the corner that had painted into the corner and I was going to be obsolete and worst case scenario, not make any money anymore. And so I started really looking for ways to work within the framework of online, uh, digital. I really wanted to make my company as much as digital as humanly possible. I also craving the freedom of working um, either in Europe, where my family's from, with aging parents, the wish to be more often there or longer periods there got stronger and still love New York, still have my home base in New York. I just started playing around and I still took regular jobs, meaning physical jobs where I had to show up in an office or where I was producing stuff for clients on site, but really started blogging, started playing with the different um, social media platforms and started playing with all different. I mean, oh my God, I went through so many iterations of from the weirdest to some, I think were pretty genius ideas, but just too early or not, I didn't have enough funding. But I just tried out like at least 20 different ways of working with small businesses and helping them get to good looking video content without spending a shit ton load of money so they could be able to compete. And it really came out of my own experience where I needed to create videos for my small production company. I didn't even know how to do that because I, if, if it didn't come with a $250,000 budget and a crew of 20 or at least a crew of six, 
I didn't know how to produce a video. So it, it was really also just sort of documenting and, and, and creating my own work experience and workflow and then teaching other people how to do what I was doing. And obviously my learning curve was very fast because I was a filmmaker. So I knew what I was doing. I just hadn't done it in a really long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I hadn't done it with an iPhone or a smartphone. Interesting. So what has it been like to be at this for a little while? And now we seem to be approaching what appears to be a, a tipping point where in the next 18 to 24 months or so, if you don't adopt video as a business, you're going to get left behind. And so what has that been like for you to have that foresight to jump in head first before people were really going hard on it? The beauty of it is it gives me now that experience and that thought leadership, if you want to call it that, where I can say, I've been doing this already for five years and this is what works and this is what doesn't work. Both in terms of production, but as I'm learning, much more important than production is actually the marketing aspect of it. So in other words, the strategy, uh, the content strategy, the posting and hosting strategy. My focus is just going further and further into direction of marketing in general and marketing in terms of strategy and content much more so than the technical aspects because those are getting less and less important. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fascinating to see how democratized video has become and they're in there having platforms say like TikTok that generally values like authenticity pretty highly and not necessarily production values. So it is really more about can you make that emotional connection or not? And yeah. then, but even we're getting pretty close to, the, you know, I mean, we already have the highest definition video cameras on our phones that have ever been on phones and that just keeps continuing. And so it's really you know, moving from something like the printing press to like these large platforms to something that's, that is as decentralized as the ability to essentially feature quality digital films with a phone. It's an incredibly powerful democratizing force that then can be used the world over really to basically create new wealth. Yeah. And what our phones can do is not even necessary for what we want to do with our videos on social media, let's say, because what you shoot with your phone, some people do shoot with really high resolution, which I've always told them, don't do that because you're going to be stuck with ginormous, huge clunky files that you can barely edit because they're so big. And if you shoot a 4k or even a 1080p, which is a standard high definition, what goes on social media is 720p. So it's a step below that. So what our phones can do today is, is not even necessary. And I often working with my clients, I really actively de-emphasize the whole technical aspect and, and really make sure that people focus on having a simple workflow so it's sustainable. Because if it's not consistent video content, you might as well just leave it. And consistency is only sustainable if you have a workflow and it's easy enough for you to actually do it and get it done without spending a gazillion hours on it or spending a lot of money on a crew and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. But I think it is something where people have to adopt that mindset of becoming a media company that, yeah, you don't have to be doing it 40 hours a week, but it has to be getting done very consistently. Cause like, otherwise oh. a lot of people, I think that all you need to do is take one video, slap it on your website and you just did video marketing and not really understanding like the sea of content that is out there and the ability to actually get through to people like on YouTube and other platforms like that is incredibly powerful. And there's way more buying decisions made, you know, through video than just text alone. 
Oh, absolutely. I think it's like a 60% increase um, through video. And then again, and that the interesting thing is also here to distinguish between service providers and between people who have are selling goods. So I work mostly or actually exclusively with service providers where if you're an accountant, if you're a coach, most of my clients are coaches. If you're a coach, you are the product. So you need to be on video. It's a very different story if you have a bakery or a pet grooming, grooming store or a bike store or you repair TVs or whatever, then you have actual physical stuff that you can show. And that's a whole different marketing funnel than if you are in the service industry. And the trust is being built in the service industry by you showcasing your expertise on video. And if you're doing it in writing, it just doesn't establish the trust the way it does when people actually see you on video speaking the words. Oh, absolutely. And I often advise business owners that are, I'm like, Hey, you need to, you really be, need to be adopting this. Sometimes it's like the business owner or the CEO isn't necessarily the person who should be the face of the company. It's good to have them like out there for a little bit, but I always tell them like, Hey, look, if you're not comfortable with it, one, you need to get comfortable with it. But two, if you have people in your company, utilize them as resources to make them into like mini celebrities, build up their own expertise, and it'll just come back around and benefit the business overall. If you have the right retention, yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about how you adopted life as a digital nomad. Step number one was to take my business from a physical office into my home, which I already did in 2009, which was a bit of a difficult transition. At first, I was in a I live in New York City, so sp spaces at Prime. I had a decent sized apartment. All of a sudden, like all these people are like prancing past my bedroom to get into the office because my office was it was the apartment layout was such that they had to go walk through my bedroom. And I was like, yeah, I don't really like that. So that was just sort of something to get used to physically and to adjust to the fact that now I'm working from home. So something people have experienced in the last year and a half, I already started experiencing in 2009. So that, that took a bit of adjusting just from a physical perspective. And then at some point you just realize that if, if you're going to be completely digital, you need to trust your staff. You need to trust everybody and everything that you are in contact with to do their work without them physically showing up at 9 a.m. and leaving at whenever they left. Certainly not at 5 p.m., not in this industry. But so, so that took also finding people that didn't take advantage of the situation or, or understood that work was work and needed to get done no matter. And, and then I think the third step was... There's that romantic notion that you're sitting at the beach and you're living this an amazing life. In my case, it's not the beach. I'm up in the Swiss Alps actually right now as we speak. Um, and But then the reality sets in that work is work. And even if you've managed to not work 10 hour days anymore, but maybe only work six or seven hour days, you're still working seven hours a day when everybody else is running around climbing mountains and having a great time. I actually still find it easier to be in New York in my apartment where there's just that mindset of I'm working, I'm getting, I'm at my desk by 10 and I'm working a full day more or less. Whereas when I'm here in Switzerland, where I'm always screening with half an eye out the window going, it's a beautiful day today. <laughs> How much of my work <laughs> into the evening? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of temptation. <laughs> it is a lot of temptation. And it's also, of course, then there's a time difference. That's something I never really have taken into consideration. So yes, of course, I can work throughout the day and then bunch up my phone calls. But during the pandemic, I was here quite a bit because it was just nicer to be here than in New York City. And I worked nights, which was fine because 
when there's a pandemic, nothing's open and you're not missing out, but no FOMO. But <laughs> you know, it just, it's not, it's not, let's put it this way. I, I had it, I had it a little bit more romanticized. Then again, yes, absolutely freaking cool that I know I can take my business at any time. As long as I have a good Wi-Fi connection, a laptop and a backdrop in my case, which you all don't have the benefit of seeing because this is audio. It, it, I'm, I can work from anywhere in the world. And that that is cool. But you actually also have to take advantage of it. And I think that's where a lot of people fall. These are still in one place. Our, if you have kids, the kids go to school somewhere. I think it's for a certain set of people who are not attached to their earth, earthly belongings and, and don't have a family that is bound to physical location. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success and do you have a favorite failure oh that's a great question do i have a favorite failure i think i failed myself through i've been in business now for 24 years we just had our 24th anniversary june 1st failures abound for sure i think one of my biggest failures uh, it falls into the topic we're talking about now was that in the 90s when i started my company unbelievable to think 1990s that is i had i still felt i needed the big office and i needed to have an assistant and i had a marketing person i I had a, a huge infrastructure and I remember 2001, 9-11, and then the bubble that burst um, in conjunction. It just immediately, I, I didn't pivot fast enough to get rid of people and physical office. And I did get a loan, you know, a, a, a disaster recovery loan, because my office was actually just a couple of blocks from the World Trade Center. And I just, I wasn't flexible enough and, and I didn't pivot fast enough. And I think that scar- scarred me quite deeply because it was also a huge financial disaster, which it took a really long time to dig myself out from. And then came 2008, Lehman Brothers. And that was just about when I had dug myself out and financially. And then that, that came the next hole. And that time I was, I was, I was on it. I'm like, I'm shutting down the office. That's why I moved January 2009. I was in my home. A staff, if any, was all remote. And I just really, I reacted so much faster. And I think that's also what made me react faster than maybe I would have otherwise in 2015, when I was like, okay, the writing's on the wall. Budgets have disappeared. Clients want what they wanted before for a tenth of the price. And I'm not exaggerating. I need to move and I need to move fast. So I, I think it just that sort of complacency that I had in 2000 and 2000, 2001, that, that cost me a lot of money. That made me very aware of what overhead can do to you and a heavy like staff people, people that are actually on payroll with you and not like, I have a big team right now, but no one works for me full-time. Everybody parceled out into their expertise, into their area of genius. And I've got one VA virtual assistant that sort of does tying it all together as a manager, another one tying it all together with the busy work. And that's it. Wow. Very efficient. I think you have to be, I think, and and I think this is something I learned from America. Uh, Americans are extremely flexible and very quick moving and being a Swiss person, we're like at the exact cultural opposite of that. That was a really big lesson for me. Too. What advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should ignore? Advice they should ignore. Advice they should ignore. Um, 
not, I'm, I'm having a bit of a hard time with this question. Next, <laughs> I, I, I have a couple of things that I'm thinking about, but I'm not quite ready to give it as a nugget. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me think about it for, for a sec longer. Okay, for sure. So tell me a little bit about how you found mentors and advisors throughout your career. I, I think we found each other probably more than anything else. So I never said, oh, I need myself, I need to find myself a mentor, et cetera. I think I just met people that were really awesome and we clicked and they happened to be older. They happened to be further down their career and were able to help me. And there's just one woman that comes to mind in particular. She was an experimental, highly decorated documentary filmmaker. And as much as I learned from her in terms of film production and, and storytelling and visual storytelling, I also learned from her tremendously as a human. But that was all just because we really clicked. But I think being open and being curious and asking a lot of questions and and not being, I think it's really good to be driven and to know what you want. But I think at the same time, you also in many ways lead to Rome, as we say, but it's never a straight line. It, it can detour terribly. Keep Rome in mind, but don't say no to an awesome detour when it presents itself. I think that is, if, if there are great opportunities or, or even opportunities that seem a little wonky, but I would say go for it and, and give it a try. Because if you don't try, you'll never know. And I think the biggest thing at the end as you're getting older is to not have done things. And I've always been somebody who's tried out everything and the one thing I never tried out, and I'm, I regret it now because it's too late now, I never went skiing in Wyoming, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I'm like, damn, that one got away from me. Everything else I'm on track with. I, I would say do and don't get yourself tied in too quickly with that that steady job that you can't get out of and the family and the kids and all that. It's like when you're young and you are still independent, really take advantage of it. I love that. That's going to be my new favorite saying, don't say no to an awesome detour. That's great. I love that. So in I, the last... I answered the previous question too. <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely. It tied it all in. That's great. So in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Oh, lousy clients. <laughs> Very nice. I am very clear on who I want to serve. I'm very clear who gives me joy and I'm very clear whom I can help. And uh, that has been such a, until five years ago, a client came through the door, I took him. And, it, and I remember saying to friends, it's asshole, pardon my French. I don't want to work for this guy or this gal. And it's great money and it's only because it's freelance. So everything is always just a couple of months or a couple of weeks even. So you just, you're bringing grin and bear it and you said it's going to be over but the problem is when you do that there's always the next asshole around the corner and and now it's a, a real beautiful relief that if there's somebody who doesn't tick the way i do or where i, I my my bs sensor my beams go come up i'm like uh-uh not working with that one and now my clients are very different before a client was a $250,000, half a million dollar affair. So it's really hard to say no to that. Now I have many smaller clients. So if I say no to a client, I'm not saying no to half a million. I'm saying no from $300 to let's say $10,000. So the consequences, of course, are also not as dire. So 
advantages and disadvantages in both. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. Mm. Um, I, I think overall, the biggest investments I've made, and I've really gone deep with that in the last four or five years is making investments in myself. So I've done a lot of personal development. I went to Landmark that some people know what, what that is. And I have several coaches that I work with. And it's not that something's wrong or something is not right. It's just that there's a depth of knowledge there. And other coaches or other people I work with can show me where my blind spots are and can help me move from somewhere where I'm maybe stuck on, or I have an opinion that I, I hold very dear, but doesn't serve me anymore. And, and I love doing a coaching in group for several reasons, mostly again, because you just have a diversity of opinion and a diversity of experiences from which you can learn. And group classes are also a lot less expensive than having a private coach. But, and I just really enjoy the sharing. If, if I'm in a group of five other small business owners who are in a similar space I'm in, let's say we're all service provider, but one is, let's say a lawyer, another one's an accountant, another one is a, a, an overall marketer and I'm a video marketer. We, we will have so much in common and yet so many different experiences. And it can be really great to get that kind of in a weekly or monthly or whatever, uh, the, the, however these groups are set up, feedback on just small problems that bug you or things that you just didn't know and they see that you are stuck on. And they can say, hey, Nina, you're bringing this problem up for the fourth time now. I think it's time you tackle it. So in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I would say that if not now, then when? Mm. And I think... I, in that time span, I turned 50 and I think there's something about turning 50 and going, okay, I've got a couple of like, I've maybe 20 more really good years ahead of before everything goes to hell. And, and, and it really creates a bit of an urgency. And it's just like the talking about it is not going to make it happen. And I'm very fast succession changed a lot of things in my life in the last four, three and a half, four years. And just out of that belief system that if not now, then when, because it just, mm. Thinking about it is not going to, it's not going to get. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I'm a ferocious reader. So that's a good question. I think when I was much younger, a lot, a lot of books, I'm trying to think of books that people might know. So I think I remember one really amazing read was the prophecy. It was a phase where I think everybody read the, what's it called? The pro, uh, um, Celestine Prophecy, was it called? Oh, yeah, by James Redfield. I remember I read that in one go. I lay down on the sofa to read it, and I got up five hours later. Couldn't put it down. <laughs> that was amazing. Just that, and for, for a couple of months after that, I felt energy everywhere. I was also very impressionable, impressionable 20-something. Another book that was really amazing, I, I, I directed and created a film about Muslim children in New York a little bit after 9-11. And one of the mothers gave me this book to read uh, called The Source by Mishner. He's more known for librettos, I think, that he wrote for uh, Broadway. And the source is the, the history of human mankind. It started with hunter-gatherers a gazillion years ago. And it was just such a, it was so wonderful to see, to really see the origin of all humanity 
and how we in the end are all so much the same, even if it sometimes feels like we are so other and so different. And that really, that, that was another, it came together with creating the film that I did where I opened myself up to the other with Muslim, Muslim religion, which I knew nothing about. I'm not particularly religious myself. So it was the exposure to religion and to a different religion than the one I grew up with. I think that would be one of the books I would mention. And I read a lot of business books, but they come and go. I'm not sure about the third one. I'll, I'll leave it at these two for right now. No, it's all good. A couple of greats. <laughs> so who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? It, it, it's a question where when you, when you get those questions, if you were to have a dinner with anybody living or dead, who would you have dinner with? I'm like, with my mom and my sister. I always have a, a bit of a hard time with those questions. There's friends of mine that I think are absolutely fabulous human beings and I strive to be like them or strive to be more like them, to be kinder. Or My, my sister is the most fabulous listener ever and I'm the most fabulous talker ever. I wish I, I would be an innate listener, somebody who can really listen for what makes people tick and what is really moving them. Certainly that would be something I would, I, I would strive to, would be very important to me to be like that person or be more like my sister. Who else? Heroes. Again, a lot of women who did what I did eventually is to say very emphatically no to getting married and having children something I never wanted, something I felt I needed to do. And it took me a while to allow myself to say, no, no, thank you. <laughs> and, and back off. So hard time actually naming actual names. I think an Elon Musk is a fascinating personality, total visionary. Is he a nice person though? Don't know. Maybe not. That to, for me, the hero status is only achieved if the genius or the brilliance is within a human being that is also a good human being. If I don't know them personally, it's all hearsay. So that's why I'm having a bit of a hard time with that question. Oh, it's all good. So tell me about some of your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, and techniques. I think quite a few of them. So I think you need to have a regular physical routine. It doesn't have to be running marathons, which I did in my life, or jump out of planes or, or triathlons or all the stuff that I have tried out. It's been, it was great. It was fun. I was very fit. But even now I, I, I still have a regular physical maintenance plan. It's just not, you know, as high octane anymore as it used to be. I just have back surgery. I've had to tie, dial it down a bit, but I think that is really important because we have one body and that one body only. And again, you don't need to be running marathons, but I think you need to, you know, be a little bit of yoga or be at Pilates or be at just walking with the dog. There needs to be something and whatever it is, it needs to be consistent. And I think that's the one thing that I'm learning more and more in my life. And I'm, I'm teaching my clients with video marketing. It's like consistency wins the day. So I think that is really important. I also think that anything that is, especially when I was trained for marathons, for triathlons, you tend to get a little bit fanatic in one direction or the other because no marathon was ever run without being a little bit fanatic about running. So I think a balance of things is really important. So I try to not kill myself anymore with like diets and with counting calories and all that and let myself just be kind to myself a little more. And that's something I, I wouldn't have been able to do 
only four or five years ago. And then I think there needs to be spiritual practice, be it that you do TM, which I know you do. I've done TM in the past. And for me, I now practice mindfulness through through drawing, mindfulness through walking. But it's a it's something I do with purpose. It's not just something that I happen to do. And I think that is really important. Mm. I love that. Nina, this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation, but that does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh my God. So many things. Just this last couple of weeks, the kindest thing, that is a big, tall order. Most recently, so I just had massive back surgery six weeks ago. And one of my oldest friends, we've been friends since we've been 13 and bashed each other's heads in boarding school way back when. She pushed her vacation. She doesn't have a lot of vacations. She has a very stressful job. She pushed, pushed her vacation to be with me once I got out of the hospital. So I wouldn't be in, in the house by myself with a dog and not, I would, you know, I'm not allowed to bend. I'm not allowed to do a lot of things. So just the selflessness of pushing your, like totally upending your plans and pushing your vacation to do that for me. I think that is very selfless and something that is, is just very wonderful. And she did it with absolute, there was no like, oh, I need to thank her making me feel bad about it. It was just the most natural thing in the world for her to do. One of, I've been blessed to have had a lot of people be very kind to me. So that will be the most recent example I can think of. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nina. It's been a pleasure getting to speak with you. Same here, Pacifico. And I have a million questions for you. So I think at some point <laughs> we're going to have to turn the tables and have you on my vlogcast, which will be with video in the near future. Thank you for the opportunity to speak from a completely different angle than I normally do. I really enjoyed that. And I, I loved your um, thought-provoking questions. Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning animated videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness.